there's one that we need, one of the leaders want to raise a question, we'd be glad to have one. That's good enough, moving right along. Um, clear thinking. All of us are employed, and I think one of the great struggles we have is in the concept of how to keep, keep our work in line and in focus. It's a subject I've been messing around with for a period of time, and I would like to talk on one aspect of thinking today as an illustration, and that is, what is success? And I'm going to take that, and the way I like to do it is just take a couple of moments and trace the history of the work ethic with you, and not for any particular purpose other than let you see an involvement of the work ethic, talk about how we view success, and then give you uh, nine principles on work. And uh, they're not long or hard, they're just little uh, synoptic type principles for you to get your arms around I really like to uh, talk about kind of illustrating to you how good ideas and good principles can really set into drift as we begin to take some of the things we talked about in the first session and begin to screw them around. If you go back in history and listen to Walt's talk last night, he talked about the thousand years when the church did not grow. Uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, institutional church dominated and the population of Christianity decreased. And if you looked at that histor historically from a commercial point of view, that would be actually the, the feudal system. That would be the feudal era of economy. Uh, nations did not exist. Uh, they were tribes. They were not national languages. Uh, Germany as a nation did not exist. England did not exist. The only reason England existed is because it was an island. But what it was was a series of tribes that kind of battled with each other. And if any of you have been in Germany or across you'll see lots of little castles and what these were were outposts which they protected the territory but nationalism and a nationalistic spirit did not exist people worked purely out of a survival type of concept you had a lord or a, a feudal lord that ran the land and the guy worked and it was a, almost it was a survival type of environment you just contributed in and there was not money or pay it was literally a barter system where you literally traded things back and forth now coinage exa existed but it really was of no value because you've got to realize there was no dominant government that existed. And so in, actually the concept of currency with the fall of the Roman Empire went out the window. And so they were literally a barter system. So they traded animals back and forth and grain or whatever it was to keep, keep the system going. It was basically to get food and provision. There was no dignity in work. Uh, you, literally work was a drudge. You were born into a work and you died in that work. And so the work ethic didn't exist. Uh, there was a higher calling, and the higher calling was full-time service. There was a higher calling, the monastic order, to get away from the trials of the world and go into some kind of monastery. And that was truthfully uh, the whole concept of what was going on. There was the higher calling. Martin Luther introduced the Reformation time uh, in the uh, 1500s, uh, and he introduced the Reformation, and, and he made some startling positions at that time, but let me only tell you the two that I really want to note with, or the couple I want to note with, uh, deal with because of uh, the impacts you and I, is he declared the priesthood of believers, and that we all are of God, and that was vitally important, that there was not a higher calling out to the monastic order. Everyone, everyone was a priest of God, and he rediscovered, as Walt told you last night, he rediscovered an elemental truth, and that we all are on the plane of serving God in a priesthood position. Huge impact. 
huge impact as you begin to embrace the implications of that truth. Uh, it not only threatened the institutional church, which I won't even go into, let's just talk about what it did in the employment side. It began to say that as I expressed myself in the job, that we became an important expression of my relationship to God. It was no more drudgery. There was not a higher calling to the, mon uh, the, uh, the, mon uh, the monastic living. That the calling was where I was, and that became vitally important. So the whole concept of work began to take on bearing. At the same time, we became nationalistic. About the same time, one of the major things Martin Luther did is invent the German language. He basically got into inventing what the German language was. And if you've ever studied German, you'll know he did a poor job. <laughs> but they begin to get languages and draw uh, national boundaries, and the whole spirit of nationalism occurred, which got into the issue of coinage. We begin to coin then currency, and currency became a staple of exchange as opposed, as, uh, opposed to animals and so forth. And so work took on a whole, you start to go through an evolution of, of work taking on a whole new order and a whole new impact. But the major things that they really came to, to, to conclude was that God ordained work and therefore work is an act of obedience, which is an act of glorification of God. So work became an area where you could glorify God. Not in the sense that I created a great product, but because God ordained that work was required and therefore I was in obedience. Grasp that. Hold on to that because that was truth. And that was what they said. Now you've got to get that one under. Secondly, it was significant in the sense that it allowed me to participate in food and shelter. And the third great truth they came up with, that all labor is equal. Because we're all priests, a doctor is equal to a lawyer, is equal to a trash man, is equal to a painter, is equal to whatever it was, that all labor was a value because God called us to work. And so in this embryonic stage, you know, and I like to say there was a declaration and a huge movement, but the... They were so far back in the feudal system that these truths begin to unfold, but they, they were hard to grasp. I'm just telling you, if you study their writings, you can see they had grasped the truth, but they didn't, it was difficult getting it implemented. And so it got into the Operation Shoe Leather, and it began to, people began to try to implement this. And so you get the phase of the Puritan, and the Puritan are a couple of hundred years later, but by this time the currency has, nationalism is a flurry, you know, it's, it's, flourishing and money is flourishing and so consequently we have a whole new a better a different platform to exercise the priesthood the believers on and so the puritan comes along and basically grows this into all our philosophy of living and we see it manifested on the american shores and they basically said obedience yes is ordained by god and it is our calling to work it is our calling to work now, within a matter of a few years, that got changed to say work is our calling. Our work is our calling. All right? And they said work was ordained by God and it was good into itself. There was no end, there was no retirement. There was no end to work. Work was work. Work was good to work. You, you should not even entertain in, in retirement. Retirement's not the issue. God has called us to work. If you made a trillion zillion dollars, that didn't matter. Remember, a trillion zillion dollars didn't exist until it, money just started to come into existence because they didn't have money. All you had was sheep and cows and stuff of that nature. And so they begin to say, no matter what you made, that didn't have, have to do with it. And they made one fatal flaw in their, in their premise. And they, they, two fatal flaws is they begin to draw it into the calling concept. And the secondly was 
that we work to provide for ourselves. They took, they took what Luther and the Reformation had come up with, it was a significant means of participating in our shelter. They began to say we provide for our shelter. And then they said we glorify God. And by that they said we glorify God because as we obey, that is what's important. And from that, virtue grows. And because of virtue, we, uh, and because that, that's the major thing, and out of a product comes wealth. And they didn't even expect wealth at the beginning if you begin to read it. And then that's begun to happen. And then and our whole, whole thing came up under Wesley. And Wesley began to say, I notice when a man gets money, it destroys his Christian concept. And he says, how do we deal with this? And so he had three principles of work. Make all you can, save all you can, give away all you can. Those are his three principles. Now, if you ever study that, you could become totally schizophrenic trying to apply that. <laughs> right? Now, what we do is say, you've got a great idea, but only 33% is accurate. But Wesley understood the pervasive nature of money. See, because when money came into existence, and it was not cows, sheep, and barns, and, and, uh, and wheat, and oats, and stuff like this, it became something that had a variable value to it. It moved up and down, and I could flash it and get all kinds of different signals back from you. Paper and coinage became different. And all of a sudden, it took on a whole new meaning. What did I do? I autonomized it. It in itself became a value. And when I did that, Benjamin Franklin came on the scene, and Benjamin Franklin said, I agree with that. We work hard to produce wealth because wealth allows virtue. And once again, he's speaking of the emulation of it. And that gave birth in the 1800s to the robber barons. And if you ever study the robber barons, you'll see a, a deep underseating that says that really what we're after is its manifest destiny that we're rich and you're poor. It is good for you that I'm rich and you're poor. Because you can see what goodness is by watching my life. Oh, it's true. No, 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 read that. Read those guys. The arrogance is unbelievable. And that's exactly what's happening in South Africa today. Manifest destiny. They have the whole concept of manifest destiny is going on down there. What happened? What in the world happened? Well, a couple of things is work became a calling. And the calling became it that I had to excel at it. And if I had to excel at it, then how do I know I excelled? Only when I'm better than you. Is that right or wrong? If work is my only calling, then I've got to do the best. The only time I know I do the best is when what? When I'm better than you. And therefore, jobs do have a rank and file. I'm better than you because I'm a computer guy and you're just a dentist. Or I'm better than you because you're a lawyer. God knows that's true. But. <laughs> there are certain truths. You, you know. Just kind of digest that for a moment. <laughs> so, out of the out of the fatal flaw of considering the job the calling, and it was a fatal flaw in their logic. See what they did is they married the word of God to the pragmatic. They married the word of God to the pragmatic. And the second thing they said, 
There's no doubt I work hard because I must earn my living. And if you married calling to making money, then it only says I should make everything I can. That is only the true testimony to my goodness. And that leads over into all kinds of insidious thinking that I don't need to go into. The Robert Barron era, the fact that God blesses me. How do you know? How do I know God blessed you? Because the business deal went through and I made a half a trillion dollars. Let me give you a test of theology and work. I mean this seriously. Write this down. You want to test your theology on work? I want you to write it down. How you believe God deals with you on the job, then I want you to come with me to the inner city in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going to take you to another Christian who loves Jesus just as much as you do. Barely has two nickels to rub together. Cannot really figure out how to hold a job down because of the way he was born into the culture. He's a, he loves the same Jesus you love. And I want you to explain to him, I want you to clearly explain to him the theology that no doubt God loves me because I worked hard and I closed that business deal. And I want him to understand your God because it's the same God he deals with. The test of your theology is that you can dialogue across culture and they'll understand your same God. And if you can't do that, then your theology, you have culturalized your theology. Okay, guys? That's a serious, serious point. And so anytime you want a good test of it, write down what you really believe. Is, I mean, when many of you start uttering these things, oh, God has really blessed me. I made more money than I ever expected to this year. I want you to write that down and look at it and think about it. Then I want you to go to somebody that's totally on the opposite side of the economy that you are, that loves Jesus. And I want you to explain that to him. And when he says, yeah, that's the same God, then I'll say, you got it right. But up until that time, you don't have it right. Because God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same God that that guy is to you. So they made two fatal errors, and that's where we got into where we were. And one place that really expresses itself is in the area of success. And what is success from the world's view if we deal with success? And I would suggest to you that there are four areas in which we really see success. And one of them is the accumulation of money is success. We evaluate a guy by accumulation of money. I want to say to you, it's not the quantity, it's the comparison that's the only thing that counts. The beauty of our society is if I can't make a million dollars a year, there's enough guys that don't make a thousand dollars a year that I'll just go get in their environment and outdo them and I'll make a thousand fifty and I'll look like I'm a success. See, it doesn't matter, Dick, that I have a dollar just so you have fifty cents. That's the only thing that matters. So in a comparative basis, money is of value. That makes me a success. I, you can determine I'm a success by valuing my checkbook. God really loves you if you've got a lot of money. Or I'm really a success. The world views that. Secondly, is by power, influence, and position. Now, I would say money tends to be the entrepreneur, by the way. As I look at this, at this audience, most of you are entrepreneurs. And I want to say to you, most of your accreditation in your, the group you, the pack you run with, is how much money you make, or how much money's flowing through your hands. Well, power, influence, and position tends to be the corporate man the IRS guy, the guy working for the large company. When I was with IBM, it wasn't money, it was position that counted. That told you how, how successful I was. As an entrepreneur, which I am today, I want to tell you that's the grading, that's the grading point for me now. I can assure you, I've seen both sides of it. 
But in corporate life or organization life or any institution, it tends to be power and influence. All right? Third thing is, I put down smart, and that's not a good one. What it really is, the number of degrees I have. I'm in the academic community. How many stripes or how many degrees I have put up? That tells you how smart I am. That tells you undoubtedly I'm smarter than you because I have a doctor's degree and you have a lowly master's degree or whatever it might be. But it's always a comparison on the degrees. Once again, it is not, there is no standard. It's only comparison that counts. And the fourth one is recognition. Let me say to you that all of these, that all of them must have short-term feedback to show my success. That's point one. Point two is they all depend on comparison. My success is always on comparison. It is always on comparison. All right? Therefore, I'm totally dependent upon measurement. But the interesting point I find in this definition of success is that if I, follow, if I look at the following four scriptures, I find an interesting twist. If I look at Matthew 5.16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right? I'm going to say to you that God has told me I will have great influence. And that God is going to provide for me, Matthew 6, 19-34. And so money is God's domain. I'm sorry, I said it, Matthew 5, 16 would be recognition. Acts 1, 8 would be power and influence. And the power shall come, and the Holy Spirit shall come to you, you shall have power. I didn't get it. And the power shall come upon you, you shall be my disciples. All right? Proverbs 9 and 10 says, The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And it's interesting to me, if you study those verses, what you will find is that the four things we have determined to grade success on are four things that God said, I will give to you. The four things we have determined to call, to declare success on are the four things that God has said, I will give to you. Now that puts us in a trap. Basically, we're trying then to grade ourselves and our value and our achievement on something that God said that he has domain over. And I think you'll have an awfully hard time evaluating success then from those criteria. Fair enough? What's God's success? Well, you can rest assured that if you, when God, God comments on success, he says that it's a product to be achieved. It's not a product to be achieved, but it's a goal to be pressed towards. The process is always what's important to God, not the product. The process, the process is always what's important to God, not the product. See, if I don't, if I don't understand that, then I've got myself a tough God to deal with because I know some very gifted people who have had a car accident or have had tragedy in their life that cannot achieve to the degree I achieve it. 
on sheer production. And then I got to say, who's this guy, who's this guy I'm dealing with? I know some people in the inner city that love God as much as you and I do. They love God more than you and I do. They know the same God you and I know. They've committed their life to the same God you know. And simply because of the environment they were born into, they do not have the vocabulary. They do not have the work mentality. They do not know how to deal with our society. They do, simply do not know how to integrate into it. And the odds of them ever doing one half of what any of you can do is phenomenally against them. And therefore, I've got to say, how do I deal with a God like that? And I want to say to you, if you study the scriptures and you look at Hebrews 11, particularly Hebrews 11, God never complimented a single great man of his on what he produced, but always on his attitude and his process as he went through life. And the classic illustration is Joseph. What did Joseph produce? Joseph produced, he saved Egypt. He made the Pharaoh rich. He carried God's prophecy forward. He became known throughout the entire world. He turned the course of history. Didn't he? He brought his, rescued his family from Israel. And when we come to Hebrews 11, what did God compliment him on? Big pardon? He gave good burial instructions. That's what he complimented him on. He said, this guy knows how to set up a good funeral. I said, wait a minute, God. Let's review, let's review the I handle that wheat deal. That was a pretty stinking shrewd deal. You know, did you, did, if you ever stayed there, do you understand Pharaoh owned all of Egypt at the end of the uh, drought? They traded. They took the wheat off in taxes, then traded it back and bought the land off the people. That's not a bad deal. You commercial guys, you get into that. that you could really make a lot of money like that. If you could just see the drought coming, you got this thing nailed. And yet God never said a single thing about that. He rescued all of the people. That was never the issue. But it was the process that he was interested in. Because even in his death, even in his death, Joseph had his mind on one thing. Wherever you go, God, I want to be part of it. And I know you're going to take these people back to the promised land. When you do, I want to go with you. The process is always what matters to God. Never the product. Never the product. Success will always be defined by glorifying God. To give a correct opinion or estimate of, and I misspelled that word, that's doxia. Isn't that right? D-O-X-I-A John 17 4 it's very important success is to glorify God and what that word means in John 17 4 is to give a correct opinion or estimate of so what it says to you and listen to me is that if I meet you I should meet God that's what it says that's what Jesus prayed for you guys you know what he said, God, I come to you, I glorified you. My men are glorified. I pray that the future men will glorify you. And that word says that you will give a correct opinion or estimate of it. That's success. That's success in God's eyes. Those who proceed and follow us 
In Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, it said that though the promises were not fulfilled and though the guys never got to the promised land they were supposed to get to, their success, and these are my words, are being fulfilled in the lives you're living. Because of who they are, we know God better. And because of who we are, those who follow us will know God better. Our posterity will be impacted because of the life we live. You want to influence posterity? Forget your estate planning. Forget your wills. Pursue God and that will impact posterity. That will influence it for generations and generations. The estate will never do it. The will will never do it. The money you leave will not do that. It's righteous living that will impact posterity. You want to be successful in God's eyes? Okay? Give your life to righteous living and it will impact posterity. Participation in the process. Can you read that in the word? Participation in the process of which the product is only understood by God. That comes back to that it is always a process and not the product. Quit trying to, quit trying to second guess God on what the product's going to be. Paul said, some of you judge me, and I don't even judge myself. I don't know how much I've achieved. Only God knows what I've achieved in this verse. And I'll wait for him to judge me. Okay? Quit counting noses. Knowing God, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Success by our dependence, not by our independence. One of the major delineators on our thinking is, am I in control? Am I almost in control? Or is God in control? Am I out of control? The godly man, always he, one thing he comes to realize is he's totally out of control. By our dependence, not by our independence. Did you have that? Oh, I know. In conclusion, okay. I'm sorry. I want to tell you guys, success, it's interesting, the word success in the Bible is only used about one time in the Old Testament, it's never used in the New Testament. But I think it's a question you've got to answer yourself, you've got to answer to yourself, what is success? When Jesus came to Gethsemane, he says, it is finished. When he went to the cross, he said it was finished. When Paul in 2 Timothy said, it is finished. Abraham knew it was finished. Moses knew it was finished. They knew they had done what God had them do. They knew they had pursued the path. They knew what success was. And success is used only one time in the Old Testament and it deals with materialistic things. But success is saying, I know what goal line I'm running at and when I'm getting ready to go across it. And it's important for you to understand what you're running at. Because if you don't, 
you'll be like the famous old Chinese proverb, he who aims at nothing always hits it. Right. Are we through with this? Okay, what is success? If, if we choose the world system of success, let me tell you what I think the product will be. We will pursue goals and measure progress and play by, okay, rules which don't work with God's equipment, with our equipment. If you are reborn with the Holy Spirit, if you've taken on the armor of God, if you have depended on Christ for your salvation, if you are a man renewed in the mind by God, and you try to run by the world system, you'll constantly be frustrated, and you'll constantly be unhappy, and you will never be content. It's like a man who is dressed out in a football uniform trying to swim in a swimming race. He's got the wrong uniform. You cannot compete on pagan standards with the Holy Spirit in your body. Of the three mindsets, the pagan and the carnal and the Christian and the uh, godly man, I want to tell you the unhappiest of the three is, I am convinced, the carnal man. The pagan is not that unhappy. You've given the mind of Christ and you're trying to live with the mind of man and you can never do it. You'll create conflict at the time you go back to be with God. And you can dress it and hide it and build fences around it, do everything you want to, but you'll never get away with it. Secondly, our success will always cost others. It will always cost others. You can bank on it. Because you remember, everything's in by comparison. And when am I the happiest is when you're the unhappiest. When am I the most successful? When you're the least successful. When have I scored the highest? When you scored the least. And I teach this to my kids every time in the school system. Who's the best guy down the school to make the best grades, who make the football team and do these things? Every bit of our system teaches them to compare and to compete. And you better come to peace within your own mind what competition really means with God. You say, it's not American not to compete. I just suggest you go to the scripture and think about that. What is the role of competition in your life? I want to say to you, if you pursue success by the world standards, you will use people. That I, that's the only way you can do it. It's the only way you can get there. You will have restlessness and discontent. Okay? We are trying to earn or achieve God's promise and gift. Isn't that interesting? What God has promised, we're trying to achieve and earn and that we will always make God unhappy. Those are five truths you can bank on if you pursue God, uh, the world standard of success as a man of God. Just bank on it. That's promised in the Bible. It's going to come that way. If you're measuring great discontent in your life, if you're measuring yourself against other people, if you sense those things, I want to suggest to you that you've autonomized You've given an autonomy to a measurement of success outside the eternal and what's happening. You're literally filling over the whole eternal perspective, and that's beginning to dominate your thinking. That's exactly what's happening to you. And you know why I know that? Because it's happened to me a hundred times. What if our life, what if I give my life to the success 
definition that God gives. What I want to tell you that our life will probably not be understood and will appear to be illogical. So get ready. Do not think that the wisdom of God is understood, relished, and delighted on by the world. Just not, it doesn't happen that way. There is a concept that the holiness of God what competition really means with God. He said, it's not American not to compete. I just suggest you go to the scripture and think about that. What is the role of competition in your life? I want to say to you, if you pursue success by the world standards, you will use people. That I, that's the only way you can do it. It's the only way you can get there. You will have restlessness and discontent. Okay? We are trying to earn or achieve God's promise and gift. Isn't that interesting? What God has promised, we're trying to achieve and earn. And that we will always make God unhappy. Those are five truths you can bank on if you pursue God uh, the world standard of success as a man of God. Just bank on it. That's promised in the Bible. It's going to come that way. If you're measuring great discontent in your life, if you're measuring yourself against other people. If you sense those things, I want to suggest to you that you've autonomized, you've given an autonomy to a measurement of success outside the eternal and what's happening. You're literally throwing over the whole eternal perspective and that's beginning to dominate your thinking. That's exactly what's happening to you. And you know why I know that? Because it's happened to me a hundred times. What if our life... Okay, what if I give my life... <coughs> to the success definition that God gives. Well, I want to tell you that our life will probably not be understood and will appear to be illogical. So get ready. Do not think that the wisdom of God is understood, relished, and delighted on by the world. Just not, it doesn't happen that way. There is a concept that the holiness of God brings fear in people. And that that fear means that people will strike out against God and try to destroy God. Are you with me? And that's true. As a matter of fact, you can see that through all history. Now see, if you really become a man of God, what are you embracing? His holiness. Would you agree with that? Would you begin to live out God before people, right? And therefore you're moving towards holiness. What are you going to strike in people's basic hearts? Fear. It is easier to destroy you than to put up with you. That's why God so richly promises us persecution. It will always cost you service without expectation. If you're going to get success with God, it's going to always cost you. First, you're going to look illogical. And secondly, it's going to cost you. You won't use people, they'll use you. Third point, God promises peace and contentment. Fourth point, you will have God's prosperity and God will be pleased. Okay, just some thoughts. I'm sure there's many others on what will happen if you do this. Whoops. Yeah, when you receive, you the 
I beg your pardon. This is persecution, that's right. Okay. Success. Question you ask yourself. If you define success, what would you write down? I got a better question. If I could interview your wife privately, what would she tell me success was to you? You want to know what really is your success drive? Let me talk to your wife. She knows. But what does she ever know? She puts up with you. She knows your dirty underwear. Now, let me talk to your ch children. Children will tell me what your success is. My kids can tell you what's on my heart. I hate them for it. <laughs> Got this? Okay. This is something to think about on success. And the reason I bring that up is, if you're going to be a man of God, let's start to think these issues through. See, I want to tell you that one of the maladies I have found in our century, in our generation of people, we're probably the best educated, poorest thinkers in the history of mankind. Wisdom is the retention of knowledge. That's a bunch of bull. That's what we were taught in college. Who's the smartest guy? The guy that can regurgitate more facts. Wisdom is the skill in living. Tell me when's the last time you sat down and looked at an issue in your life and said, God, I want to know what your thoughts are on this and I'm going to wrestle with you until I understand it and I'm going to apply it. I want to take this through until I understand bedrock what's on your mind, God. If you're not doing that, you're not growing with God. If we don't become better thinkers, it's an, let me just change it. It is an absolute shame. On, it's shame on us that the intellectuals have shamed us for our religious beliefs over the last few years. That's ridiculous. There's just no call for that. God has given us the evidence of what the issues are. All the guns are on our side. Let me tell you, it is harder to disprove God than it is to prove Him. The holiness of God invades all of mankind. It's all around us. And we sit there and say, well, it's all that we can't, it's by faith and we can't explain that. You study evolution, you want to talk about faith? Well, that takes faith to believe that junk. But if we're not thinking men on what God's saying in our life, if you're not going to start thinking about it, you're taking the divine wisdom that has generated all of creation and ignored it. That's what you've decided to do. So let me give you nine principles on work and labor. Just to get you to do a little thinking on work and labor. Well, we did, uh, we, we knocked the Protestant ethic off and we've been down into, uh, the first one is get all the filthy lucre you can. Alright? The first principle, the first principle is don't add to the Word of God. If the Bible don't say it, don't believe it about work. And though it may be pragmatically important to say it is our calling, watch out, that's not what the Bible says. And though it may be pragmatically important for me to emphasize my need to earn a living, watch out, that's not what the Bible says. And though it may be pragmatically important for me to tell you that I need to spend a hundred hours a week doing a good job 
And that's, that proves I'm glorifying God. Watch out. That's not what the Bible says. The test is, what does the Bible say? And we are buried in cultural manure that we're taking off, peeling at a time. And the, the process must go on till the day we die. The absolute stake in the ground is don't add to the Word of God. And anytime you hear a guy give a talk on, on work, and there's a bunch of that junk going around now, and they're going to flood you with a bunch of stuff, go back as, where do you find that in the Scripture? And I want to see the illustration and take them back to it. I don't want to know what's logical or pragmatic. I want you to take me back to the Bible. We have complicated work way out of proportion. Yes? How do you handle people that populate another Bible that somewhat, I mean, there's other things in uh, certain denominational Bibles that, you know, they can say, well, here, right here it is, you know. I don't know how to do it. Well, the question is, how do you deal with somebody in that has another Bible or basically has taken some isolated truths and growing great philosophies out of it. Well, let me say it's incumbent upon us, Chuck, excuse me, Chuck, it's incumbent upon us to become men of the Word so that, one, we're not threatened by an issue like that. Two, we don't get into debate. But three, we really understand what the bedrock issues are. The Word will speak for itself if we'll just take them back to the Word. One, one rule of any time you discuss, you don't debate. You don't have to debate. The Word does the work for you. But see, the problem is you're not a good student of the Word. I'm not talking to you, Chuck. We are not good students of the Word. You know what most of our logic is? Is what somebody's told us. Now, I was, I was asked by a young guy here just a moment ago about a commentary. You know, my commentary, I think it's valid to have commentaries. But I want to tell you, you should never go to a commentary until you have studied the Word on your own. Why? It doesn't matter what that other guy thought the Word said. What did God say to you on it? You must pursue the Word and, and unlock the Word to your life. It is not the responsibility of Weiss or Matthew Henry or Wycliffe or Gothard or Bill Bright or Lauren Sanny to tell me what the truth of the Bible is to me. Now, get me wrong. We need those guys. Do not get me wrong. The ultimate responsibility is whose? Ourselves. We're the priest. So, Chuck, I come. I think it's a great question. I would say pursue it with all diligence. And as the years unfold, that bedrock builds. They're going to come and go. Guys have thrown false Bibles at us for years. That's not a new phenomenon. That's not a new phenomenon. It's not one to be rattled with. It's just one to be understood. Okay? First thing is don't add to the Word. Secondly, God commanded us to work. And you can almost stop exploring any other reason for work. With that, That's it. You've just about gotten it. And what we try to do is take that single truth and build these huge philosophies around it. There's many, interestingly enough, there's ministries growing out today trying to explain the work ethic. What's the definition of work? Beg your pardon? What's the definition of work? Participate in the barter system. Yes. Timothy, it's, it's reconfirmed in the New Testament too. Genesis is the first opening. We worked in the garden before the fall. We worked out of the garden after the fall. Work was not to curse. He worked before the fall. Work is in it. God worked. We work. And that begins, if you begin to grasp that, then it gets an interesting issue. How do I justify retirement? My brother, and I'll give you an illustration. Here's Captain Pagan. Well, he's really a neat pagan. <laughs> 
if you want to, you ought to, you ought to be through 14 years of discussion he and I have had. There's been some interesting times. My brother stumbled in and made a few bucks. Okay. And a lot of, yeah, I won't go into that. And so he quits work. He is absolutely the unhappiest guy in the world. And the issue is he's lost a fundamental truth that God has built into us and that we are to work and participate. We're to work while we're here. Now, he is struggling to get back into the work marketplace now after laying out for four years. We do not work to earn money. We, let me tell you two things. We do not work to earn money so that we can go into full-time ministry. Nay, nay, brief candle. <laughs> not true. We do not work to earn enough money so that I can retire. Untrue. That is, neither one of those are true. We work, why, guys? Because God commanded us to work. Take it as it is. Do not try to glamorize it. That's it. How much time do I have, Winston? You're standing up. You're not pacing yet. Am I already late? Okay. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go very quickly through this. Okay. Obedience in all of life. Obedience in, obedience in all of life is our calling, not job and work. Our calling is the obedience in all of life. Now, there's a movement moving through today that says, labor is our calling, and we will go before the throne of grace and give to God our products, like our harvest in the wheat field and the art we have drawn. i got a problem. I don't think God's interested in computers. <laughs> and how's it going to look when I lay a little bitty microcomputer, somebody can make it a great big one? You know, I'm going to be in trouble. No, I'm making fun of it. The point is, the calling says, the calling concept is, I will lay the product of my labor before God's feet. You cannot find that in the scriptures, guys. And you cannot. The calling is the participation in all of life. If I itemize the job as my calling, what happens? It becomes the expression of my excellence. It becomes the expression of my excellence. What's going to happen? I've got to compare. I will go right through that cycle again. I can logically run you right down to the gutter again on that discussion. The product has no eternal value. There's absolutely no intrinsic value in any product you're developing in work today. Only the attitude and heart has eternal value. The minute I autonomize the product, guys, what's going to happen? It's going to overcome the eternal. The minute I give autonomy to my product, I'm in trouble with the eternal. The only the attitude and the heart has eternal value. If you search the scriptures, that is the truth that prevails from Genesis to Revelation. We don't earn a living, God provides. Now we could stop there and let you go digest that for about another year. But I, let me just say to you, that's the truth. And I'm not going to elaborate on it. I'd like for you to go back this year and write that down and begin to see, do you really believe that in how you handle your job? How you handle the anxieties of your job? How you handle the pressures of your job? How you handle a nasty prospect? How you handle a bad boss? All employment is equal from an eternal perspective. You ain't got a better job than nobody else. My value comes from God, not from the job. Right? And number nine, God is in the business of redeeming people, not institutions. And those are nine principles about work that come out of the thinking, that come away from, that come out to define success, that take us all the way back to the original dif this discussion we got into is what is the mind of a man of God in the aspects of your life? 
And here are nine principles I've been able to extract out of the scripture which govern how you view your job. All right? Winston, you're on. No, I'm getting out of here. You said no questions. Yes. Yes. You Diseased children, and there's no old people that are going partially inside. We are beautiful out there. Ladies and gentlemen, that is my life. I want to tell you that my role is not just camp out there. God loves all of us. And the major thing we need to do is learn how to breach the gap and reconcile all things. If your life is totally partitioned away from the rest of the community, you are made to be. Vital, vital error in your life. You must move out of your culture and recognize those people that you go deal with. Sit down. Just go ahead and repeat what you said. Honestly, all, I, all I want to say, and I'll be uh, still on that, is that one of the real challenges we have before us in this room is the reconciliation of believers. And to illustrate that is how we solve the poor problem is we throw money at it. We stand up and say, Merry Christmas, here's a turkey. <laughs> so it's called the Christmas Vigilante. We drive by throwing turkeys at the poor people. <laughs> or we go away and say, I feel so warm and blessed. God loves me and he loves the poor. <laughs> you want to do something? Go down and live with them. Go down and be with them. Bring them into your home and love them because God loves them. You want to solve that problem? That's how you begin to solve that problem. And that is the bridge that must be built. Now, I, I, now you're asking for the tate tate the answer. What do you say to them? Okay. And I'm going to say to you, Ed, and I'm going to shut it down with this, is that is the responsibility of you to understand the Scripture to be able to discuss that. And it is not right for you to camp off in beautiful downtown Colorado Springs and not understand that issue. If I spend the three hours, will I go Yeah. Okay. 
hey, you're great guys to work with. I really love you. Guys, let me make a uh, suggestion. Um, again, the, the tape sign-up is back there. Uh, Gail is the kind of guy, and Walt is also. It's just the way God's gifted them. And you're going you're gonna to hear a guy in the morning that's going to do the same thing to you. And that is that, that the real gift is to, is to stimulate your thinking so that you can get back into the Word and, and begin to put some of these issues together and you're not you're not going to walk away from here on Saturday afternoon with these issues lined up. I mean, what you're listening to here is this man's this man's thought about this for years and years and years and he's still in the process of going through that. And we never get through the process. And my suggestion to you would be be sure and get yourself a tape and then listen to that thing over and over and over again. Maybe you want to have your secretary take the tape and put it on paper so that you can visualize it as well as hear it. Because these are principles that men, we got, we got to get their bedrock. And if we don't, we'll become an absolute product of our environment. And Gail was talking about... Uh, uh, glorifying God. And Larry and I were doing a little study, uh, I don't even know where Larry's at. Larry and I were doing a little study on, on David. And, uh, when, when Saul needed some help, they, they described David. And they said several things that, that, uh, about David. But the one thing they said about David is they said to Saul, and God is with him. I guess my question to you would be, if someone was describing you in your life, would they say, God is with him? That is glorifying God. Man, I want to change one thing on the schedule. We say 3 o'clock for workshops this afternoon. Let's meet here at a quarter till three, and I'll have you meet the uh, discussion group, I mean the workshop leaders, they'll tell you a little about it, and then I'll tell you where those are going to be. Quarter till three, okay? For you fellows who want to ride horses, if you haven't signed up, do so downstairs. Uh, sign up for your tapes. We'll go back in the same groups, the same place, to discuss the... Uh, Gail's talk on success, and you can run that right up to 12.30 and we'll have lunch. Then you'll be off until quarter to three back in this room. Okay?
Guys, let's move along to our discussion groups as quickly as possible. Thank you. 